Last week at the end of the lesson, I was talking about how do we know what God wants us to do. If you recall, it was a point for home. How do we have God's guidance in our lives? And I said, 90% of the decisions we need to make, if we would just spend our time in the Word, we'd have very clear answers of what decisions we need to make. For example, should I lie or not? Should I envy? Should I be greedy? Should I... Why did we take out overeat? Should I... <laughs> okay, Hudgens. Uh, should I... Uh, you know, you know uh, 90% of the decisions of just lives day to day, what should I do... We have pretty good, clear instructions on Scripture. Now, 10% of the time, Scripture may not be so clear and easy for us. Like, should I buy this house or that house? Should I take this job or that job? And what I was urging us is, while we, in those 10% where Scripture doesn't tell us exactly, I'm not a big fan of using the Bible as... um, a magic eight ball or a Ouija board where you close your eyes and you just sort of put your finger down and figure that, um, you know, that's it. And Judas went and he hung himself. It, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying God can't work that way, but I, I'm not a fan of that. He's renewing our minds, not our fingers. And the way he renews our minds is by drawing us into his mind He gives us wisdom, James says, when we pray for it. And so we seek God's mind, we seek God's wisdom. And the closer we get to God, the more we follow Him in the 90% that's so clear for our direction, uh, the better sense we have for the 10% on where He wants us to go and what He wants us to do. The reason I went back over that is because it was misunderstood last week that I was saying 90% of the answers of life are in the Bible and God's left us in the dark on 10%. I didn't mean that at all. All of the answers are in the Bible. I think what I'm telling you is in the Bible that we go to God's Word, and and if we don't have clear instruction from God, we seek it out from Him, okay? So I want to clarify that, and uh, with all of that homework done, let's talk about Paul today. Now, Paul... He writes these letters. He doesn't write them all. He's probably got a secretary taking them down. But the famous painting of Paul writing his letters doesn't have the secretary. It's got Paul. So, And we speak of Paul writing. And he would certainly write his name at the end in large letters so people would know it was an authentic letter at least some of the time. But when Paul's writing to the Philippians, which he hadn't done yet, As we're studying through the life of Paul, we haven't hit that uh, prison time where he writes that epistle or letter to the Philippian church. But later in his life, beyond where we are today, Paul will write and he'll tell the Philippians, do not be worried about anything. Most translations use the word anxious, but anxious means worried. Do not be worried about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, that's incredible advice. And I dare say, if we were to divide this room in age, where we put the older people to the right and the younger people to the left, let's say. You know how like sometimes in athletic events they'll divide people up by height or for pictures? They'll divide people, you know, to make it look right. If we divided people by age, I'll bet you we would find older people understand this better than younger people. But younger people understand it better than middle-aged people. I may be wrong, but I would think that may be true. And so here's what I want you to do. As we look at the lesson today, I want to ask you, what do you worry about? You know, what is your rickety bridge that you got across that you're worried about? Legitimately, perhaps. There are some very legitimate, scary things out there. Things that affect your health. Things that affect your heart. Things that affect those you love and care about. Things that affect your pocketbook. Things that affect your sanity. There are some very legitimate things that we encounter. And that's true regardless of what age you are. We have a tendency to look at younger people. I look at my high school daughters and they get all concerned. Rachel had a graduation party this Saturday. And uh, she was, or Friday, it was Friday. She was all concerned about some things. And part of me thought, oh, those are silly. And yet if I'd been a high school senior, those would have been massive concerns to me. And it's not fair to write them off as silly just because I'm at a different place in life. So we all have very legitimate concerns regardless of our age. And what Paul is saying to the Philippians is, don't worry about them. Let God take control. Not that they're not legitimate. They are legitimate areas of concern. Don't ignore them. But take them to God and let him handle them. Now my question for you is, do you think Paul just knew this naturally? Or do you think it's something, when Paul wrote it to the Philippians, that he had learned as he had walked with God? Had Paul learned Alfred E. Newman, Mad Magazine, remember what, me worry? You've got to be kind of my age maybe to catch that. But um, Did Paul actually learn this lesson? It's one thing for someone to stand up. Uh, I, I wish I had a picture of Jesse and William Holyfield. Jesse Alcorta and William Holyfield work at our law firm. Uh, uh, Jonathan Armour, you're here, aren't you? Yeah, Armour, you know him. If you ever get both of them out playing basketball, it's hilarious. Put them on the same team, they self-destruct. Because what Holyfield will do is he'll spend the whole time telling Jesse what Jesse ought to be doing. But Holyfield's not doing it. He's just coaching from the side. 
And Jesse's upset because Holyfield's not doing it. And it's real easy to, to get frustrated with someone who just stands on the sidelines and tells you what to do. But there's a healthy appreciation we have for someone who's actually gone through it themselves. Paul didn't write, oh, don't worry about things. Instead, take those things, those matters, those concerns, those anxieties to God and let God deal with them. Paul did not do that just because the Holy Spirit moved the pen in his hand. Was God behind it and inspiring it and moving the pen? Sure. But it's something Paul actually had experienced in his life. And he's speaking out of his experience as well as out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think we'll see some of that today as we continue Paul's third missionary journey. And we start getting ready for the Corinthian letters that will be coming up. Now, if you ever get a chance to go in Albuquerque, New Mexico to the University of New Mexico, you can go to the Meteorite Museum. Anybody ever been? Oh, come on. You really have? John Bull, you've been to the Meteorite Museum or to New Mexico? You used to live in Albuquerque. Okay. Dorothy, you lived in Albuquerque. You, okay. The Meteorite Museum. This is the centerpiece. It's this uh, meteorite that fell from space into Kansas in 1948 and weighs 2,000 pounds. It's a heavy rock. Now... I don't know that I've ever seen a meteorite fall. I've seen them in museums, and I know about them. There are some 15, the estimates that I found said anywhere from 15 to 70,000 meteorites hit the earth each year, though lots of them aren't much bigger than a pebble or a grain of sand, or maybe a grain of sand, because these were at least two grams apiece. So, uh, not, not necessarily very big, marble size maybe. But lots of them hit. Now, we're pretty good about it. We know what they are. We ever get to see one, we can explain it to our kids. John, you could tell your kids about it. That's a meteorite. It fell from space. It's a rock from up there come to earth. Smaller than it was when it entered our atmosphere because of the effects of the atmosphere as it falls. Right? Put yourself back in time. Strip away the scientific knowledge you have, especially about outer space and the cosmos. Imagine you lived 400 B.C. And you believe that the heavens and the skies are actually inhabited by gods. You got Zeus, you got Apollos, you got Hermes, you've got Athena, you got all of these gods that inhabit the heavens and then also tend to dwell uh, uh, on Mount Olympus. In fact, one of them has a fiery chariot and he drives it from one side of the sky to the other every day. That's what we think is the sun. So you've got, if you have that mentality and some rock comes down from the sky, just plop and lands on planet earth, what are you going to think? 
Well, a very common thought in, in classical Greek times is that the rock was thrown down by the gods. And whatever shape the rock is, you're supposed to find in it some image of the god or goddess that threw it down there. It's kind of like uh, the guy that sold the chip on e- the potato chip or whatever on eBay that looked like the state of Arkansas or something. Okay, well, I can eat a potato chip and make it look like Arkansas. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in buying those kinds of things, let me know. But I'm cheaper than eBay. But, but you're supposed to be able to find it in there. And this isn't something that's new. There is a famous Greek playwright named Euripides. And Euripides wrote a number of different Greek tragedies. One of them is called Iphigenia Among the Taurians. Iphigenia Among the Taurians tells a story about this gal named Iphigenia who's about to be sacrificed to the goddess of Artemis. Okay? And uh, Artemis intervenes and instead switches her out for a deer and takes Iphigenia over to Taurus, and in Taurus, which is the northern part of the Black Sea, puts her there to serve as a priestess in her temple. The temple is built around what we would call a meteor, or meteorite. The temple is built around this stone that fell from the sky that they thought was, had the image of Artemis. And so we can read in the play, for example... We can read where, oops, that didn't quite work, did it? Let's try it here. We can read in the play, and this was written 400 B.C. We can read in the play, um, uh, when I came and asked you how I might reach the end of this whirling madness in my labors. You commended me to go to the land of the Taurians, where Artemis, your sister, has an altar, and to take the goddess statue which they say fell from the sky into this temple here. See? Later on in the same story, uh, Iphigenia's brother comes and steals the uh, meteorite. And uh, so they go out after him. But meanwhile, after he's stolen it, a terrible wave brought the ship to land, but the maiden was afraid to step into the water. So Orestes, that's the brother, put her on his left shoulder, marched into the sea, leaped upon the ladder, and put within his good ship both his sister and the thing that fell from the sky. And this is written 400 B.C. So the thing that fell from the sky is what they were calling meteors. This actually has something to do with Paul. Bear with me. But, while you're bearing with me, let me remind you of something I've told you before. There is what uh, some folks call God of the gaps. This is my own illustration. It's as if science tells us things that we know and things we understand. But there are gaps in what science can explain. For the ancient Greeks, 
one of the gaps were meteorites. And there is a tendency within humanity to define those gaps as God. Oh, it must be a God thing. This rock came, fell from the sky. Must be a God thing. And we have to be very careful with that. Because what can happen is science can then come along and explain scientifically what happened. And if you put your faith in the wrong place, once those gaps are gone and they become things we know, for some people, there's no room for God. Because if we misplace our faith and we put our faith in things that aren't biblical, we risk losing our concept of God when science comes along and teaches us something different. Does that make sense? See, the biblical view is that's the difference between superstition and good theology. Superstition means we're going to apply to God these things we don't understand. As opposed to just having good theology and accepting there are some things we don't understand. See, good theology says all of this is God. Things we know and things we don't. We've got science because God gave it to us. We've got science because God wanted us to have the tools it takes to struggle within this fallen world to make it a better place. If someone is sick, we don't refrain from taking them to the doctor because this must be a God thing. We don't understand the disease, so God will cure it. Heavens no. God gave us medicine. That is part of the God thing. And it's okay to seek it out and use it. That's what God put it there for. Not to trick us as a tool for us. Now, Paul knew this. Paul knew that the rock that comes from the sky is not a god or an image of a god. And the reason this is relevant is because such a rock had fallen at Ephesus. And the people in that area had built a huge temple to the goddess Artemis. Just like they had at Taurus. And this huge temple had been built to the goddess of Artemis around a meteorite. A chunk of rock. A dirt clod from outer space. By a bunch of people who were superstitious. And did not understand what Paul knew. And that is that God has revealed himself not by sending a chunk of rock that's got his image on it. If you turn it just right and have had enough to drink. <laughs> God has revealed himself to us through scripture and visually through Jesus Christ. God didn't send a chunk of rock to earth. With his image. God became man. With his image. And with his godness. In him the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. Okay. So 
Paul knows this. Paul's not awed by, a rock fell from the sky. It must be the goddess Artemis. So with this background, we go back to Ephesus where Paul was. Now Paul spends, as we discussed last week, over two years in Ephesus. Paul in his heart says, okay, I think it's time. I need to go back to Macedonia, which was where he found the church at Philippi and the the church in, in Thessalonica and in Berea. He says, I know I need to go back, but and I want to go down into Achaia, which is Athens, Corinth, Chintri. I know i got to go back and strengthen those churches. There's stuff going on at Corinth I need to deal with, but I can't quite leave Ephesus yet because the field is still fertile. I need to be in Ephesus. So what Paul does is he says, I'm going to send Timothy and Erastus out in front, and I'll be back. I'll get over there as soon as I'm done here. And Paul stays in Ephesus. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, there's this fella who's a silversmith. His name's Demetrius. And Demetrius and other silversmiths, they make shrines. Little uh, silver-looking image altars that you could buy. <laughs> Basically, you know, Ephesus is a huge tourist trap. Okay, let's just take a time out and place this into perspective. I told you the meteorite came down and they built a temple. Let me tell you about the temple they built. When you think pretty Greek temple, what comes to mind? The Parthenon maybe in Athens, you know, the, or in Nashville they have another one rebuilt just like it if you ever get to see it, Centennial Park. It's like dead on. But the Parthenon, okay, the temple at Ephesus is four times the size of the Parthenon. It's huge. It's in the list of seven wonders of the ancient world. If you go... It, now, there are lots of lists of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay, don't get me wrong. But this one makes almost all of the lists. So, we can throw them up there. You've got the walls and the hanging gardens of Babylon. They're on the list. You've got the great pyramids... They're on the list. You've got uh, the lighthouse at Alexandria. Some put it on the list. Others don't. But it's on the list. Uh, The Colossus at Rhodes. That's uh, the big statue over the, the harbor of Rhodes that the ships would sail through. You've got uh, the, the Mausoleus' uh, tomb. We get mausoleum from that, by the way. Big tomb built to King Mausoleus. These are the seven wonders. You've got Zeus, the big statue of Zeus. You've got the temple at Ephesus. It's one of the seven wonders. If you go back and you read, uh, um, here's another ancient writer. This is a fellow named Antipater. Let me tell you what Antipater said and uh, let you see this. Antipater writes as follows. On the temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Okay? Now, Antipater is writing this uh, before the time of Paul. I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots. That's one of the seven wonders. And the statute of Zeus by the Alphaeus. I showed you that picture. That's another one. 
The Hanging Gardens, that's another one. The Colossus of the Sun, that's the big guy standing over the harbor. The Huge Labor of the High Pyramids. The Vast Tomb of Mausoleus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand. And this was, this was a famous place. This was famous not only, not only was it famous as a tourist trap, <laughs> sorry, uh, as an attraction for people to come see. But it was the Swiss bank of its day. People would take their money to the temple and put it on deposit. It was a safe place to leave your treasures. It was the Swiss bank. Ephesus would come under control of a lot of different powers. It wasn't always Roman. It wasn't always Greek. Alexander the Great. Any number of different people would come, but they'd never attack the temple because it was a holy place. It was built around a meteor. And so they always left the temple and everything in it intact. So Dio Chrysostom, who was a fellow who was alive at the time Paul's there, he's about 10 years old, but he writes later as he gets a little bit older, he says, you know about the Ephesians? Of course, large sums of money are in their hands, some of it belonging to private citizens and deposited in the temple of Artemis. Not alone money of the Ephesians, but also of aliens. You know, not just the Citibank. It's like international persons from all parts of the world. In some case, even commonwealths and kings put their money, which all deposit there in order that it may be safe. Since no one has ever yet dared to violate that place, although countless wars have occurred in the past and the city's often been captured. And he goes on to say, you know, this is the, the, the Swiss bank of its day. This is the, 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 the Swiss bank of Asia Minor. All right. You've got a town, city of 200, 250,000 people. You've got a temple that brings people from all over to gaze at it. People want to buy the souvenirs. People want to go back and say, look, I got a little altar for the dirt clod temple. Um, people, you know, this is a big deal. So Demetrius now, who makes his living off of selling such trinkets, gets very upset because not just in Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia Minor, the people are turning to God. And he gets a real burr up his saddle. Because Paul's hurting the idol slash souvenir trade. We actually have copies of Artemis. And we can find inscriptions. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was a slogan. Luke mentions it twice. Because what Demetrius does is he stirs up a bunch of the local people who all depend on the temple for money. They can't find Paul. But they find a couple of his buddies, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they haul Gaius and Aristarchus down this road to the uh, theater. 
and they haul them in there. And the whole time, the people start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and Luke records it twice, but we can go outside of Luke and find it in archaeological inscriptions all over Ephesus. That was a slogan. That was, you know, that was the pitch. I was like, USA, USA. Except for them, it was, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It actually fits into three Greek words, so it sounds a little smoother in the Greek. A little more chant-worthy. But they start chanting it. And, and, and you start tinkering with people's pocketbooks, and you can get attendance. I, I'll say it again. You start tinkering with people's pocketbooks... And you'll get attendance. And they did. And the crowd shows up. And the crowd shows up. And the crowd's about to get out of control. Now Paul, bless his heart, he's over off in the town somewhere. And he decides he needs to come help. But Paul is begged to stay away. Not only by the church... Paul is begged by some higher-up officials who've become his friends. I think Paul was very active at what Pastor Fleming was teaching us this morning. Paul was very active about being out and making relationships with people. So, the town clerk actually stands up and says, Time out, guys. Time out. Look. Either that rock came down from heaven or it didn't. But we all know it did. And Paul's not going to disrupt what we're doing. Just let him be. I'll tell you what's going to disrupt it. If we have a riot, the Romans are going to come. And they're going to clamp down on us. They're going to charge us. They're going to fine us. They're going to put their troops in our city. Is that what you want? Everybody just go home. And they did. And shortly after that, Paul decides maybe it's time for him to move on and to go pick up. So his mission trip continues. But we're going to pause because while Paul was in Ephesus, Paul had a chance to write 1 Corinthians. And that's what we're going to look at next week. We need to understand a little bit of the setup. Oh, by the way, the town clerk did say, uh, if you've got a problem with Paul, just go see a lawyer. (laughs) It's just struck me as humorous. I can see lawyers will have paid the town clerk to stand up and say, oh, if you've got a complaint, let's don't riot, let's sue. Um, And for those who are visitors, I'm allowed to make fun of lawyers. I am one. So the uh, town clerk intervenes, says, uh, hey, see a lawyer if you need some help. The court system met in Ephesus, so it was easy to say. If we were trying to put together, kind of a new subject here, we're on the subject of Corinthians now. If we were to put together a chronology of events that integrate the book of Acts with what we know from Paul's letters, we get a little bit fuller view of what's going on as we consider Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. If we consider that Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have a copy of. He wrote a letter that we don't have. Oh, we've got 1 Corinthians, but that's a tricky title. It's our 1 Corinthians. It wasn't their first. It was their second, at least. 
Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about having already written to them. In fact, Paul not only wrote to the Corinthians, they'd written back to Paul asking questions. So Paul had sent Timothy over. And Timothy was supposed to go try and address some of this stuff because Paul's concerned. He's got that gnawing feeling in his gut. So Paul sends Timothy over. And then Paul writes him again. That's our letter, 1 Corinthians. That's what we'll look at next week. After Paul writes him again, Paul makes a painful visit over there. So he's leaving Ephesus. He makes it over to Corinth. Paul terms it, quote, a painful visit. It was not a good one. It it, it hurt. It hurt Paul a lot. In fact, it left him devastated. And Paul left with the problems and the pain unresolved. Paul sends them another letter. We would call it maybe 3 Corinthians. It's a tearful letter, he says. It's one he wrote after having the painful visit that was, he was in tears. He was that upset. After he writes that, Paul says, my spirit is not at rest. I was really troubled, worried, anxious. And Paul's that way until Titus comes and brings him good news, cheerful news, that there's been some resolution and that things are are moving towards being right again with that church. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians. So it's that relationship, that that struggle, that I set out this morning with the recognition that next week we're going to try, God willing, in one week to look at 1 Corinthians. We're going to do chapter 1 through chapter 16 in the sense that Paul would have liked the letter read at once. But we'll do it in today's jargon with PowerPoint. Try to make Paul happy. All right? Points for home. Paul says, my spirit was not at rest. Paul. Paul. What? Me? Worry? Paul. So we're in good company. When Paul says, don't be worried about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When Paul will write that years later to the Philippian church, he didn't just talk the talk. It was something Paul had learned. It was real to Paul. Paul knew what it was to worry. So when Paul gives us that godly inspired advice, it's not just from God and the Holy Spirit. It's something from the heart of Paul and from the life of Paul. So here's my suggestion to you. If you're at a place right now with some worry over legitimate things or illegitimate, Here's my suggestion to you. Take a moment, write it down. Not right now. Although you, you could, but you've got to watch it. People will be looking over your shoulder saying, yeah, 
I knew Lewis was worried about his serve. (laughs) I'm not asking you to let other people see. Frankly, this is yours. These are your worries. And when I'm telling you to give them to someone, I'm not telling them to give them to your neighbor. Your neighbor can't do any more with it than you. The best thing your neighbor could ever do, the only thing I think your neighbor could ever do to help you with your worries, ultimately, is just point you to Jesus. But you take your worries and you write them down. Just just take a moment at the end of your day or in the middle of your day or when the worries on your brain, write it down. Then after you write it down, find a quiet place, stop and pray about it. Just say, God, I'm worried about this. I've written it down. I'm worried about how it's going to affect me. I'm worried about how it's going to affect my family or my loved ones or my friends. I don't like the direction this is headed. I see doom, gloom. This is bad. My spirit's not at rest. I can't handle this right now. I have too much on me right now. My world is crumbling. Or it might be. I don't see the answer. I can't find my way out of the maze. I can't get out of the trap. And lay it down before God. But when you do it, lay it down thanking God for taking it. Lay it down before God. Prayer with supplication. God, would you take it? With thanksgiving, Paul said. That's a step of faith. That's a baptism of the moment. That's a step where you say, God, frankly, I don't see how you're going to get me out of this either. But I'm thanking you right now. I'm going to take you at your word. This worry belongs to you. And then you turn around. And you just live like God wants you to live. And he'll take care of it. See, our tendency is not... Our tendency is to turn around and say, Okay, now I've given it to God. And then as soon as we turn around, we take it back with us. Now I've got to go fix it. No, you live holy. You apply yourself. You do what you think God wants you to do in that problem. But you do it the whole time, knowing that God is in control. It's what Pastor Fleming had as the scripture. That's, that's the, you know, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of Christ. Do it to his. That's what you're doing there. Okay? Point at home number two. There's danger. The great temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. That's Demetrius talking. By the way, you know what? He was right. Sorry. He was right. You can go to Ephesus and the ruins are spectacular and you can see the theater where uh, uh, Paul's friends were hauled in. But you can't see the temple of Artemis. It was destroyed. And the columns were used by Justinian when he built the church. Hagia Sophia in Istanbul in the 500s. 
You can go inside and you can see the temple, or the, the, the pillars that were used in the temple of Artemis because he reused them. Supposed to be the grandest church ever built, at least until Notre Dame. So what does that mean? There's danger the temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing? Yes, but let's be salt and light to the world. And in that regard, I can add no more to that than the sermon this morning. So on point. Final homework. Read 1 Corinthians for next week. Lord, thank you for each person here today. Thank you for our guests. I pray they'll feel welcome coming over to the house today and know that we'll have enough food that we can share with them. Uh, It's my prayer that you will take worries from our class, from our loved ones, from your children, that your children won't be burdened down with these worries that you're there to carry. It's my prayer, though, that we will learn how to cast our cares upon you and grow in faith as we do so. We pray for our missionaries, those from our class that are out, those from our church, and those from your kingdom. We thank you for our chance to be together this afternoon. Thank you for the food we'll eat and the fellowship we'll share. Through Jesus our Lord, amen.